This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello there and welcome to episode 14 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Today we're going back in our archive to 2014 where we were joined for a hangout with Ian Ashby. In this hangout, Ian will be talking about from the nations to the nations and how in our church plants we can send people overseas. He'll be talking about what's involved in doing so and how we can make sure we're sending and supporting them well. You can find this full hangout including a Q&A with Ian and the notes on all that he has to say at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 14. So without any further delay, here's Ian Ashby. So I'm um, the team leader at New Frontiers Church. We grabbed the name and I'm the team leader of New Frontiers Church in New Hampshire in the United States. Um, I work closely with John Lanferman as a member of his team and uh, I serve a number of churches here in the northeast of the U.S. and uh, had three glorious years with Colin Barron when he was over here. Um, The church that I lead, um, I would, our, well, actually the vision, I think, for all of our churches here in the Northeast is to be sending churches uh, with a global vision. Uh, now, some of you may have heard Andy Martin speak on broadcast uh, about a month ago, a couple of months ago, about having the importance of having a global focus, whether you are an established church or a church plant, and um If that's you, if your church has a global focus, then at some point you're going to have people who who are going to want to go to the nations. And so really what I want to talk about is about being a sending church, some of the practicalities of that as it relates to the nations. Okay? I hope that's what you thought you were signing up for. That's what I'm going to be talking about. So if I can just start off by just, I'll just tell you a little bit briefly about our situation here. My wife, Emma, and I moved to the U.S. from England 12 years ago. We, uh, we came here to start a church in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And when I first sensed God calling us here, I had a number of questions, and the main one being why. Why the United States, of all places? Uh, it really wasn't on our radar. It was out of the blue. And uh, I felt God really impress upon me that it was for the nations. And, in fact, we, I remember being in a prayer meeting, a group of us were praying for the nations, were praying over a map of the world. And I remember seeing very vividly a vision on that map of a, uh, a bridge. And it was a golden bridge uh, going from the northeast of the United States right across to uh, West Africa, which I felt represented the nations. It was a golden bridge. I felt it was speaking about resources that we were coming to the United States to build churches to unlock resources for the nations. That would be money, uh, gifts, people, and so on. But the, 
the bridge, there was two-way traffic. There was people coming and going. It wasn't just about us blessing the nations. It was about us being enriched by the nations about this interaction. So when we came to the United States, we came really with that vision uh, right from the get-go, uh, but had no clue how we were going to see that worked out. Uh, no strategy uh, for getting to the nations. And, um, but we started with that vision and were kind of praying into that vision, communicating that vision uh, right from the beginning. And as a result, we began to see God open doors for us in quite amazing ways. And I will, if you want to ask about that, I can talk about that in the, maybe the Q&A. Um, I think 12 years on, I would say our goal today is to give a minimum of 10% of our church income to reach the nations. Uh, in fact, right now we're giving 15% of our church income to the nations uh, to because we're supporting workers in the Middle East. Um, and that's on top of 10% that we're already giving to New Frontiers USA. So that's 25% of our church income, which we are giving to reach the nations. But actually a bigger goal of mine is not just to give 10% of our income, but actually 10% of our people, um, we're praying that we'll see 10% of our people go into the nations. And um, we're not quite there yet. We've got 20 people now overseas, um, including children. There'll be about 10 adults, mostly working into the Middle East. Uh, although our whole church is really involved in praying and giving and visiting and so on. I often uh, tell our church that, you know, it's not what, about what those guys are doing in the Middle East. Rather, they're spearheading what God is doing through us as a church. Uh, they may be like the, the spearhead, but we're the shaft that is resourcing them and enabling them to hit the target, but it's one spear. So, you know, some of us, well, isn't there a tension between trying to reach people locally, as many of you are trying to do in church plants, trying to reach people who are local, as, and having a global vision? Isn't there a tension between those two things? But I think, you know, what we've really tried to communicate from the beginning is it's it's not just, you know, local or global, it's both and. It's Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, we're passionate about reaching our neighbours. Um, we really want to make an impact upon our communities locally, and I could, you know, share ways in which we're doing that. But it's to the end that we might catch them up in God's global mission. So we're reaching people locally, is to catch them up in this global mission uh, that we're about. You know, I think this is um, uh, particularly important for our young people. Um, you know, increasingly, you know, young people need something, a vision bigger than themselves and uh, are wanting to see the world. And so often, you know, they end up going with YWAM or OM and um, not criticizing them, but we really believe that, uh, that you know, it's the local church that is God's uh, mission agency. And because uh, that's what we see in the book of Acts, isn't it? In, in Acts 13, that, you know, Paul and Barnabas didn't say, hey, guys, we feel called to go overseas, so see ya. You know, because that's how often it seems to happen in our, in our churches. But their call came in the context of a church prayer meeting. It was where the leaders of the church, you know, were you know, witnessed to what God was saying. They, they prayed with them. They fasted with them. 
they laid hands on them, they commissioned them, they sent them out, and then Paul and Barnabas, you know, came back to the church to, you know, to give a report to them. So, you know, I don't think this is just something that's specifically for my church or our churches here. You know, I think that this biblical mandate to make disciples of all nations should be the vision of every church and should be in the DNA of every church plant. I won't say anything more about that because Andy Martin kind of covered that really in his broadcast. So if you didn't hear that, it'd be worth checking that out on YouTube. Uh, but just to say, you know, I remember Dave Devonish a number of years ago speaking from um, Isaiah 49, uh, verse 6, how, you know, it's too small a thing just to restore the tribes of Jacob. But, you know, if that is our focus, just focusing on our own tribe or our own people, it's too small a thing. And, um, you know, because God's called us to be a light to the nations. And so, you know, I remember Dave saying, you know, if the nations aren't in your church's vision, then it's too small a vision. Um, if your prayer meetings don't include the nations, then your prayers are too small. And if your church budget doesn't include the nations, then it's too small a budget. So that's the vision, right? But what I really want to give you is some practicalities, okay? Apart from it being biblical, why is it important that people are sent out from the local church and how does that work practically? So I just want to give you two main things, really. Uh, the first is financial and the second is uh, pastoral. So first of all, financial. I think it makes sense that the local church be the primary base for financial support. Um, you know, if you take the kind of traditional missionary model, you know, then often what happens is you go, if you're going with a, a missionary organization overseas, then you will be responsible for raising your own support. You're going to be going to your uh, friends, your family, writing letters, um, asking for pledges, asking for money. Uh, you might go to different churches asking for their support. And uh, I'm not saying that's wrong, uh, particularly if there's relationship there. But here's the problem that I've seen. You know, let's say a family goes overseas with a, with a missions agency and they've got a number of people, they've got a number of churches, you know, have been pledging their support. That family is then constantly going to have to be concerned about maintaining that support unless people forget about them. So they're writing regular newsletters back home. They have this need to tell success stories, kind of stir up people's emotions so that people will continue to give. And then when they come back to, uh, if they come back to their home country, you know, for a visit or for a rest, what often happens is there's this endless round uh, going from church to church, you know, parading the children around, dressed up in the national, you know, costume of the country, showing slides, you know, please continue to give. Um, and so rather than coming back, for, you know, for a rest, it's this exhausting fundraising tour um, to keep the money coming in. Now, I've known a few missionaries who've had to do that. Uh, some of them, I would say, have had real issues in their family life uh, or in their marriages, and um, and it's mainly because they've really not been able to talk to anyone about the difficulties that they're facing because they're always having to put on this facade that the mission is going well, so please keep giving. Um, but 
if it's your home church that's sending you and that is taking responsibility for the oversight of the finances, then as you can imagine, that it relieves that worker of uh, a huge burden and releases them to really be able to then focus on the work that they've been called to do. And then when they do come back for a visit, they can rest. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that people we send should always be financially supported from uh, their home church or country. Um, if someone is, is sent overseas to work cross-culturally long-term, then I think they really need to be thinking about how they're going to financially support themselves long-term. Um, if, it's, um, if it's a primary leader, some, a church planter, it may be that that support's going to come from the community that's going to gather there uh, in time. But there are many other church workers who may not be supported full-time. Uh, and so, you know, how are they going to support themselves long-term? And I think that's important for two main reasons. Um, I think the first is contextualization. You know, it means really understanding and becoming relevant to the cultural context that you're in, you know, becoming a native, as I've had to do here in the U.S. Um, you know, if you're going to truly be accepted by the people that you're working amongst, then, you know, you've got to become one of them. You've got to be living and working there in the community. And that is hard to do if your support is, is continually coming from the motherland, as it were, because you'll always be seen as somewhat separate. You know, you're a foreign missionary. So contextualization, but the other reason I think is so as not to be a burden. Uh, and obviously we see that in scriptures where the apostle Paul made tents and used his trade where necessary to uh, support himself so as not to be a burden to the churches. So, uh, you know, as a sending church, you know, one of the things that we will therefore talk to um, our people about is how are they going to live somewhere long-term? You know, do they have a trade? Do they have a kind of tent-making skill that is going to support them? Uh, and, of course, these days it's, it's necessary in many countries uh, in order to have a visa to be able to stay there. So uh, one useful skill might be having a certificate to teach English as a foreign language, as a second language. And, um, you know, and a couple of our guys have, have, you know, gone and got that certificate to help them. But in the beginning stages, financial support from the sending church is usually needed. Um, you know, often those being sent can't begin to work uh, immediately. And we've come to realize that when a language has to be learned, it takes a long time and it's a lot of hard work. Uh, now, we learned this from one of our guys who we sent out four years ago to join um, Andy McCulloch there on, the, on his church planting team uh, in Turkey. And, uh, you know, they went with some financial support from us, but they, he also needed to get a job there um, teaching in order to support his family. And which is what he's currently doing. The problem with that is it leaves him very little time to really learn the language. And when I visited there and I saw the city, I realised, you know, you know, big city, uh, public transportation to get to work, you know, long commutes, uh, long hours at work, uh, coming home exhausted, uh, no energy left to do language studies, and you know, not being paid a lot, uh, and yet unable to get a better job without the language. So it's kind of catch-22. 
So his advice um, for anyone considering going into a different culture is to get financial support for two years so you can give yourself to learning that language. Go to language school or whatever, you know, two years and then think about uh, getting a job. And, you know, we've taken that advice seriously. Um, our aim now is to financially support the people that we're sending out, uh, which is mainly to the Arabian Peninsula. And um, we've got a couple we're supporting there full time for two years right now while they learn the language. And uh, obviously that's, you know, quite a financial undertaking for a church. And it would be hard for smaller churches, I know, to even be thinking in these terms. But, you know, we're not a big church. We're a medium-sized church. And um, for us, it's meant taking a, a, a big annual offering specifically to be able to reach the nations. Um, we've asked people to consider ple you know, pledging a monthly amount on top of their tithe to support a particular couple. Uh, so, for example, $50, um, you know, given by, say, 50 people or 50 families, that's 30000 a year, that can almost support a couple overseas. We've got all our community groups involved, uh, got them, you know, thinking about fundraising events, creative ways to raise funds themselves because we want the whole church involved in this. Um, and uh, we're having a, a church-wide yard sale next month. That's very popular here. That's like a car boot sale, uh, but it, yeah, everyone sells their junk. So, you know, we raise a lot of money that way uh, to be able to support our guys overseas. Um Sometimes, uh, you know, where there's a relationship between maybe a few churches, maybe working together in, a, you know, a particular sphere, there's the possibility of that group working together with the sending church in order to support overseas workers. Now, obviously, that means that um, it also means uh, meeting with those who are being sent and helping them as well with their own finances uh, so we need to do that, make sure that they're debt-free, uh, see if they're saving money, if, they're, if that's possible, uh, helping them to create a budget for working overseas and, and living there. Um, and, of course, that doesn't end once they've gone either because it then means, you know, continually reviewing that, reviewing their needs, helping them come up with a plan, what happens, you know, at the end of two years and so on. So that's the first reason I think why people should be sent overseas with the involvement of the local church, and it has to do with finances. Right, the second reason has to do with pastoral care. I got to know a young couple um, who were being trained by a missions organisation over here who specialised in sending people to unrich people groups in remote areas. It's like a two-year program. They did the two years, and then they were sent out to a, a tribe in northern Mexico up in the mountains there, and they were, they were sent and pretty much just left to it. There was no real pastoral kind of support, no apostolic oversight, uh, no uh, relationship. They were just trained and then parachuted in. And the result of that was they really struggled and got badly burned by the experience. I mean, they're back in the States now, still recovering two or three years later. And again, I think it's another reason why people should be sent out from a local church where the pastors know the people they're sending. Uh, they should know if they're ready to go. They've got the relationship with them. 
Uh, they can continue to provide care for them after they've gone until they can become part of a new church community with its own elders in the, in the culture that they're living in. Now, for us at New Frontiers Church, it means uh, three main things. It means, I think, first of all, preparing people to go. Uh, secondly, uh, it means planning communication. And thirdly, prayer, right? Three things for pastoral care. So preparing people to go for for our team it meant doing training with a with a missions group who specialise in the Islamic world. So uh, I don't want to give the impression that you know uh, we don't need parachurch organisations because I think that there are many specialists out there who can really help us become more effective in planting in different cultures. Our church didn't have the necessary experience in the Islamic world and what kind of culture shock that our workers might face. And um, so working with this agency was very helpful in preparing our people to go, recognising that culture shock is very real. And um, one of the things that they do is they ask a lot of, it's about two weeks assessment, um, residential, and they ask a lot of searching questions, do kind of uh, psychological profiling. They're trying to uncover any weaknesses, any character issues that will need to be worked on that inevitably will surface when you're in a pressure situation. So I would hope that in the future our own church will be able to do a lot more in terms of preparing people ourselves because after all we've got the relationship to speak into their lives and provide the ongoing accountability but that kind of preparation, I think, is, is really important, preparing people to go into a different culture. And uh, obviously within our family churches, we've got um, training like from the nations to the nations to help uh, to prepare people for that. Um, you know, the second thing would be, I think, planning for communication. Uh, I've come to realise how important that is and could be a lifeline to the people being sent out. Um, you know, it's so easy when we send people out uh, that they just get forgotten about. You know, uh, with the best will in the world, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. You know, they're, they're a photograph on the, on, the, on the map of the world, on the wall somewhere. And, you know, uh, and as I say, they get forgotten about. And, and communication is not easy anyway, particularly if you're in a completely different time zone and it's a bit haphazard. And so that's why there's got to be a specific plan for communication, whether that's a phone call every two weeks or, you know, Skype call. And I know for myself, you know, for that to become a reality, I have to appoint someone who's going to take responsibility for that and make sure it happens. Uh, so every, every one of our uh, people we send out, they're given, uh, they have a mentor here who will be in touch with them, who will encourage them, uh, find out what their needs are, ask questions, let the uh, elders know what's going on, how we can be praying, uh, and so on. Uh, there should also be a, a plan for uh, strategic visits. And um, actually, you know, it's actually not helpful to have too much communication. And again, that's why I think there has to be a plan. Um, our team has been advised not to be on Facebook and um, not to be emailing people back home all the time. Part of that is for security reasons, um, but also... I think if people are continually kind of looking back home, they will continue to be unsettled where they are. And so that's why, you know, there needs to be a plan for communication. It needs to be talked about, thought through, and, you know, put into place. 
And then finally, there's prayer. And probably the most underestimated and the most important thing of all. Um, and this is where I'm very grateful for a couple in our church called Barry and Lee, um, who themselves have spent time overseas with their family, helping planting a church in Belgium uh, and then into Mexico and with us now. And they understand uh, from experience the importance of having people praying for you. Uh, you know, Barry came to me and said, I really feel we need to be having a, a prayer group just to be praying for our people overseas. And I was very happy for that and thought it was going to be a monthly prayer gathering. But he said, no, it needs to be every week. And so every week there's a group of people who are praying for all of our workers overseas, praying, you know, for, you know, the situations there. And, um, you know, I'm just so thankful for that. Uh, they've seen some amazing answers to prayer. But more importantly, I think, you know, it's been such a lifeline for uh, our workers, our members who are currently serving overseas. But, you know, we don't want prayer to be restricted just to a small group of people. Um, it's important that our whole church is involved in that. So obviously when we gather the whole church for prayer, the nations are part of our, our, our focus in praying. Um, Sunday mornings, you know, we've, we now have a, a, a live video link where on certain Sundays we'll have a couple who are over in the, the Arabian Peninsula. We'll have them on the live video link projected up on the screen. There's two ways they can see us. We can see them. We can talk to one another. Uh, everyone can hear in the congregations where, as I'm asking them, you know, questions, and then we can all pray for them together. Uh, we even had uh, 15 babies back, uh, dedicated recently at the church service, and and this couple out in the, uh, in the in Arabia, they had just had a baby out there, so they were able to join in on the on the celebration through live video link. And again, that's been a great way for the church to really keep envisioned and involved uh, in the nations, and it's been great for overseas workers, so they don't feel so isolated and feel supported. So, two uh, practical reasons why. I think people should be sent by local churches. And um, apart from the fact that it's biblical, uh, it makes good sense both from a financial perspective and also uh, because of pastoral care. Um, now, before I kind of conclude here um, and take any questions, if you have any, uh, let me just comment just very briefly on apostolic oversight, uh, which, of course, is a whole subject in itself. But, um, you know, we believe in, you know, the role of apostles and prophets is crucial in planting churches. Local church leaders may, uh, you know, they play an essential part in providing um, pastoral oversight, but we need apostles and prophets to bring strategic wisdom and revelation to be able to lay good foundations and see healthy churches engaging in mission. So for our guys in the Middle East, there's um, actually more than one sending church uh, providing pastoral oversight, but there's just one team providing apostolic oversight. Uh, that's myself, um, uh, Sam Poe, who works with me here, uh, Andy Martin in the UK, and one of our guys on the ground out in the Arabian Peninsula who leads the team out there. Um, so it raises the question, you know, when we engage in cross-cultural mission, where does the authority for that mission lie? 
Um, you know, who's responsible? Is it the people who are being sent? Is it the sending church? Or is it the apostolic team? Um, you know, in the traditional kind of model, it tends to be the people on the ground who have been sent that, you know, making all the decisions there. But um, I think the answer's got to be it's the relationship between all three, that, you know, we work together uh, in relationship with one another, uh, you know, using all of our different gifts to serve God's purposes there and to see his kingdom advanced. We hope that you found what Ian had to say both helpful and practical for your own situations. For all the notes on what Ian was talking about, plus the Q&A with him afterwards, you can visit www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 14. Also, if you are interested in exploring a call to world mission and want to know more about cross-cultural ministry training, then you may be interested in the Broadcast World Mission stream. You can find out more information about this at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org world.